together we want to turn your attention now to the study of the New Testament and the teachings that we have in it on the announcement that was made on the day of Pentecost when preacher when the preacher of Peter preached the first gospel sermon it was brief it was forthright it was authoritative it was spoken near a single ancient city called Caesarea Philippi this is where the first time Jesus spoke concerning his church but would ultimately influence every city in the world it was spoken before a small group when he talked about his church that Peter talked about on the day of Pentecost it was probably about 29 or 30 AD but it would affect the entire human race unto the end of time it was spoken by Christ the Son of God it was this announcement I will build my church as far as is known it was the first time that Christ stated his plan to establish the church as a matter of fact it was the first time he used the word church to describe the formation of a permanent society a group of people in which he would dwell in which the original language he would tabernacle the people who followed his teachings yet the church was planned by God the Father from the beginning of time according to the many passages that we have in the New Testament it was foreordained before the world began during all the centuries before Christ the church remained unveiled a mystery step by step age by age God prepared man for this time that we're enjoying even today when the church would become a reality and that Christ would dwell in human beings God called Abraham and he promised that through him and his descendants that all people of the entire earth would be his children the Hebrew prophet foresaw the coming church as an institution that would surpass all others in Daniel 2 44 2nd Samuel 7 13 and 14 and other passages that we could quote it would bear the divine image of God it would be his likeness it would be his dwelling in human likeness yet he would be living upon the earth it would never become outdated when he made the promise to Daniel he said it shall last forever and shall not be left to another people 
shall last forever. It would be universal. It would be unrestricted by geographical landmarks, political ruling, racial barriers, or social barriers. All of this was in the planning. Less than one year after Christ promised to build his church, he was betrayed. He was condemned. He was crucified. He was entombed. He was put in a, in a tomb. And there were guards around it. For three days, three days later, by the most meaningful miracle, Christ was resurrected from the dead. His resurrection overcame death, overcame the devil. It overcame the darkness of the unseen world. He heralded the beginning of that glorious age before it happened and promised people it was, had been planned of God and prom promised people that his body would be raised up and this tabernacle that he would, this body would be raised up in three days. Seven weeks following Christ's resurrection, the church became known. It was established in Jerusalem. It was established on the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days after the uh, time that he had instituted his Lord's Supper. And when the city was filled at that time with devout people at a feast, that the Jews had kept for a long time. And it was a right, rare time for it to be announced that Jesus would fill people's lives. It was a worldwide audience. It was people out of every nation under heaven. And people learned the truth about the promises of God that had been spoken of in ages before. And it was the glorious news. It was the new age that had dawned. It was that for which they had looked for for centuries. And there had been years before, since the, that there had been a prophet on speaking for God before John came on the scene. For the first time, Jesus was proclaimed as the resurrected Lord, as the Messiah, as the one who fulfilled the Old Testament passages, the one spoken so frequently in David's writings and Psalms and in Isaiah and Jeremiah and many of the writings of Moses speaking of a prophet that would be uh, raised up would rise up and they should hear him and they'd be destroyed from among the people if they didn't hear him. For the first time, for the first time, men were told to repent, to change their ways. They were commanded that Christ was Lord of all and that he was the Messiah. And they were commanded to be baptized in the name of Christ 
That means by his authority, for the forgiveness of sins. That they were to die for, but Christ died for them instead. That the justice of God might be satisfied, and that man might be free. And they were also given the Holy Spirit. That day they were given the Holy Spirit. Those who were implanted with the Word of God, and it brought forth obedience, it is said that they were given the Holy Spirit. On that day, 3,000 people believed that Jesus was the Lord and the Christ and the Messiah that fulfilled the Old Testament. And there were many passages used by the Apostle Peter to state that it was fulfilled, and he gave the chapter and verse including Isaiah 2, Joel 2, and many of the, of the Psalms. On that day, the church became, uh, came into existence for the first time into the hearts and lives of people. Jesus began to reign. Jesus was alive. He was alive in the flesh. He'd been put to death, but he was alive in the flesh. It's the mystery of the ages. It's that which we have looked for. It's that that lives forever. The person who receives that, he lives forever. What is, what, what is the church? The church is people. It's Christ's people. It is a total of all people who obey Christ, who unreservedly themselves are committed to him personally as a God, and yet living in them. Christ in you is hope of glory. They found peace. They found joy in service. Christ and the church are inseparable. Christ gave himself for the church. He purchased it with his blood. He is the head. He supplies the body with its life. And it's a mystery. It's like the human body. And yet he's the head of the church. The head directs the body. The head saves the body from harm. The head directs, directs the body. The head unifies and coordinates the different organs of the body. But at the same time, the head depends upon the body to carry out its functions. In like manner, Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. Christ gives life to the church because he is the head. Christ guides and controls the church. If you don't have faith in him as the head, the Messiah, the church is not the church. Christ is the Savior of the church. In Christ, the church is composed of people who differ in race, background, culture, status, and talent. It's all one. 
There's no place for prejudice. Yes, Christ the head depends upon the church and the body to accomplish his purposes. The church is the hands, the feet, the mouth by which Christ works and speaks within the world. And it's an honor to be Christ in the body. It's an honor to know that the angels rejoice because you repented and became a member of a body. And the moment you did it should never be forgotten because the angels rejoiced and sang when you confessed him. And it'll never change. That's how significant it is to be a member of the body of Christ. It is therefore impossible to understand the church without affirming that the church as the body and Christ as its head are inseparable. The understanding of the church as the body of Christ points out the necessity of being a member of that body. Any individual who is not a member of the church is not a member of the body of Christ. This is the teaching of the New Testament. In the first century, a man became part of the body when believing deeply in Christ as a son of God, and that he existed before he ever came to the flesh. He, the person who responds, the individual, he turns from sin because God is holy, he's, in, he's separate from sin, he is, he is not a part of what the devil got man to do when he rebelled against God. And so we come back to God through the price of his Son and through his blood in order to be a part of God. And we confess that his, we confess our faith in him, and that faith is a living faith. It, all, it isn't his confession that just takes place up here when a person comes up and says, I want to be baptized. It's a confession that you live by, that you die by, that you worship by, that you appropriate Christ by and the Holy Spirit by. It is a faith in him. And then a person submits unto the death of the old man that is crucified in the watery grave of baptism, which God designed, gave it by Paul in Romans 6, to know that the body of sin was destroyed. And it just takes man going through a symbolic way in order for him to know it happened. You don't smell the blood, taste the blood, or see the blood. But because he shed his blood in his death and he purchased us by his blood, we come in touch with his blood. When we go into his death, that's where he shed his blood. And in that burial, we become one with Christ. That's the way it was in the New Testament. It is so reaffirmed in Colossians 2, in Acts 2, 
And in 1 Peter 3 and others, we could just multiply the facts. Baptism was an act of obedience to the, command of, to the command of Christ, that he was your Lord. The burial in water was a de decisive act. It marked a radical change in the man. The man is immersed. The woman is immersed. The old person disappears. You can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't smell it. You just believe it because it's by faith. And Christ enters into the life and the heart of a man. And out of the water comes a new man, a new woman. His life had been transformed. He shares the power of an endless life. He shares the power of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He now is incorporated in the body of Christ. And he can carry the name Christian. I belong to Christ. He's now complete. He's free in Christ. Without restrictions. Without sectarian creeds. Without denominational alliances. That would come later. He is indeed free in Christ. In the first century, members of the Lord's church met in Christ's name on the first day of the week to worship, to share the holy memorial meal, the Lord's Supper, to unite in hymns of praise, to unite in prayer to an unseen God whose hand they had taken whose Christ they had embraced with all of his power, and they gave their, of their prosperity and their physical means to support the work and the interaction of that body and to receive God's word in teaching. Ananias and Sapphira were destroyed because they lied about it. That's the only ones that did. And that he won't destroy anybody else. We'll just have to meet it in judgment. But he's still alive. He knows every time that we rob him of worship, of prayer, of anything else. The description of the church as the Christ body puts organization in its proper order and perspective. The unity of the church was that of a living orgasm rather than a ritualistic organization. Like I emphasized this morning, religion is what man might do. But salvation is what God has done. And when we become a part of the salvation, we interact. Christians of the first century worked and worshipped together in local churches, independent of each other, with no central human organization governing them. Each local church, guided by a group of elders according to the teachings of the Bible, was a complete entity in itself. Local churches were linked only by their common tie to Christ as the head the head of the church. 
This picture of the church as the body of Christ explains the quality of life lived by members of the church, being inseparably related to Christ as the spiritual being that lived in the flesh, that died, and that lives now and can live in anybody who claims him by obedience. He can live in us. That's the mystery of Christianity. Now, a lot of people who call themselves church members and Christians do not espouse that faith. They only espouse a tradition. And that's sad. That is sad. It breaks the heart of God. Following him, we do in loving, humble obedience. Christ in the world is made known by our devotion and our service and our consciousness and our respect for the living King. The church in the first century found great joy in being together because they were one and they all shared the same hope. They knew they would live forever and ever. They knew they had their names written in heaven. They were willing to die for that faith, and they laid down their lives. They had joy in relationship. Thus, in the first century, the church was the body of Christ, united simply and vitally in the one and only common denominator that matters. That is Christ, the living King. The glory of the church was her relationship with Christ. And that's the reason Paul could say in Galatians 2 and verse 20, The life that I now live by faith, and the live in this flesh I live by faith. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is no longer I that liveth, but Christ liveth in me. And he said, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Nineteen centuries have passed. Many things have changed, including man's ideas about the church. To some, church means little more than a cold and awesome building. For others, church is synonymous with a denomination, with different names, with names of religious sects. It is popular today to depreciate the importance of the church. Many cry, long live Christianity, but down with churchanity. Well, if that's the way they look at it, amen. If it's that cold and, and separated from Christ. Members of the Lord's church, however, believe that the church is important. Provided it is a church that has existed for over 1,900 years. The church established by Christ and revealed in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament and fulfilled to minute fulfillment that it exists today. Churches of Christ of today. And of course, there's a lot of church. Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints, I'm not talking about them. Church of Christ United Church, I'm not talking about them. but. I'm talking about the ones who take the stand. What I'm saying is this biblical. It could be the church of God because it's referred to as that, even the church of God in Christ. But that of the death and the resurrection of Christ, 
is a fundamental faith that they have. It follows that man's response to that message be the same today as it was then. Man today must believe in Christ and confess that faith in Christ, not only when he repents of his sins and is baptized, but he confesses it from that day forward. And it's a living confession. He must turn from sin and be baptized into Christ. That's when man submits to Christ today, as man did in the first century, he becomes a member of the living spiritual body of Christ. May not even have a name written above it. May not even have a building to meet in. But it has a body to live in, and that's that believer that takes him as the living Christ. In the New Testament church, the church today is governed by Christ. It's head. Each local church should be directed by elders, men of ability, experience, and qualifications, and people who are convinced of what I've just been preaching the last few minutes. It has deacons or servants that uh, try to fulfill the, the uh, requirements of people working together, supporting the elders and supporting the members. Worship is expressed in the same acts of faith that characterize the worship and service of the church in the first century. Partaking of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week as it was demonstrated in the teachings that it keeps, it keeps his, proclaims his death till he comes. And he knew what he was doing. Our plea is to restore New Testament ways of worshiping God in purpose, in doctrine, in worship, and in word. And Christ's plan is certainly revealed to us to where that we can understand it. This is a space age. This is an age of progress. This is an age of explosion in knowledge. Man looks ahead, not backward. He is moving forward in science. He's moving upward in rockets, outward in space. Why should we be concerned Someone may ask, with a church that's 1,900 years old, because it existed in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. The same might be asked about Christ, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, all happenings of the same century in which the church began, including our own man has, has looked back to Christ, believing this was the most progressive thing we could do. In return, he's going to come again. And he's working today in hearts and lives of people. Christ is always contemporary. He's always up to date. He knows your needs. He knows just how you feel. Hebrews 13 and 8 says, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no one that has a problem, that has difficulty, that faces death, that Christ doesn't know how that person feels. Christ has not changed. What he did for man's salvation was done completely, never to be repeated. Once for all, he paid the price. All you do is claim it. 
And when you claim it, you rejoice with angels that are in heaven, and your name is put there. And you can be assured that you have eternity waiting for you. Don't lose that faith. But what about man? Has he changed? Fundamentally, man is the same. He has the same basic needs. He has the same drives. He has the same capacity for good and for evil, for happiness and for unhappiness. Man's condition has not changed. Like man in the first century, man still wrestled with guilt and fear and pain and death and disillusions and anger and hate and confusion and doubt of who he is, where he's come from, and where he's going to. With all his scientific progress, man has discovered no cure for sin. The sin of Jerusalem, the sin of Corinth, the sin of Rome is the sin of New York, San Francisco, and L.A., and Tokyo, and Shanghai, or anywhere else we might name. It's still here. As in the first century, man needs something definite upon which to base his life, and Jesus is that life. He still hungers for direction. He still hungers for meaning. He still hungers for purpose. He still hungers for unity. He still thirsts for life eternal. Christ is able to meet those needs perfectly. Man's needs and Christ's ability to answer man's needs make Christ both relevant and absolutely imperative in our taste day and time. It's the only answer. If therefore we look back to Christ, we must in that same view see the church. Since Christ is still the answer to man's needs, so then is his church or his body, and we're all members one of another. The little finger, the eye, the ear, we all make up a part of it. To accept this takes faith and courage this is true because popular concepts and impressions of the church are far removed from the church of the first century. It will take massive faith and great courage to move against the tide of the times. But of course, it took faith and courage for Christ in his day to come from heaven be born as a, from a virgin and to go through his growth to a full manhood, to step out into a world that he made and the people he created to reject him and to disown him. When he was telling them all the time he was their creator and he was their God. He did and worked as he did because he loves us. I don't know why he had to handle it that way. We'll understand when we get to heaven. He wanted us to keep our freedom. He wanted us to keep our dignity of being made in the likeness of God and making the right choice. He didn't make us to be a robot. 
despite the opposition of public sentiment and religious leaders, Jesus stepped out and gave us the answer. He took faith and courage on his part. It takes faith and courage on our part today to follow Christ. Peter, Paul, and others to proclaim salvation in Jesus Christ. It took faith and courage on the part of those who heard the proclamation to reject their past life and even their religious association and their concepts and consideration of their traditions in order to submit to a, an unseen Christ who had been crucified, the lowest death, a felony that he had committed, which was not fit to, the person who did it was not fit to live, and yet he was innocent. But the glory of Christ and the church is reason enough Faith and courage grow out of the surpassing word of knowing Christ as our Lord. It is time to submit fully to Christ. It is time to take seriously the concept of the church. It is time to act. The church must not remain a beautiful idea. It must be a reality in the heart and life of an individual who will sacrifice to be Christ-like and to live forever and ever. Knowledge of Christ and faith in him come from the inspired writings of the New Testament as well as the Old. Knowledge of the church comes from the... It, it is time that we take that knowledge that comes from that study and look back to Christ and his church. It will take faith and courage to protest and protest the concepts of ill-founded expressions of what we use and the way we use the church today. I know Christ and his church remains, even in the 20th century, the greatest blessing known to man. You ought to lift your head high if you're a member of the body of Christ and he lives in you. You ought to be proud to be a member of that one who lowered himself to earth and demonstrated his love for us. How wonderful it would be if everyone who believes in Christ would be willing to submit wholly to his will. To be united with him and with all other believers that there might be one body of Christ. What a revolution would take place. Whatever, wherever men call on God and Christ Think of the peace which could flow into millions of hearts and homes. Consider the joy of millions and the freedom that they would enjoy in Christ. Imagine the impact upon the millions of unbelievers if we could just get them to accept this concept that Christ came to give man. And it's so simple and easy to really understand. No wonder Jesus prayed or his followers, that they might be one. No wonder, he says, all men shall know that you're my disciples if you love one another. No wonder the apostles of Christ stressed and the need for unity. No wonder the Lord laid out the fundamentals of all these teachings so clearly 
that we cannot misunderstand it. The only hope of a believer in Christ is to take this message, to accept it, to own it. And I close with this passage from Ephesians 4. There is one body. There is one spirit. Even as you're called in one hope of your calling. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. There is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. Would you surrender your life to him as we stand together and say,